Well, if you've got a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 12, which is where we're going to be tonight. During World War II, the Battle of Normandy lasted from June 1944 to August 1944, and the goal was the Allied liberation of Western Europe from the grip of the Third Reich. The code name was Operation Overlord, and the battle started on June 6, 1944, which is famously known as D-Day, when some 156,000 American, British, and Canadian troops landed on five beaches along a 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified coasts of France's Normandy region. And the invasion is one of the largest, if not the largest, seaborne military assault in the history of the world. Prior to D-Day, the Allies conducted large-scale deception campaigns that were designed to mislead the Germans about where they intended to land. Very successful, by the way. Within two and a half months of D-Day, all of northern France had been liberated. And by the following spring, the Allies had defeated Germany. Many call the Normandy landings the beginning of the end of the war in Europe. It was the turning point. There are very few events in all of American history that are more remembered and studied and revered and recalled than D-Day. Just in terms of movies alone, we have Patton, we have The Longest Day, which I remember watching uh, when I was a senior in high school and Miss Smith's government class. I loved both those days because we didn't do schoolwork, we watched a movie, so I remember it. Where Eagles Dare, Overlord, Ike, Countdown to D-Day, D-Day, the 6th of June, Breakthrough, A Matter of Resistance, The Desert Fox, The Big Red One, 36 Hours, Storming Juno, Saving Private Ryan. That's just to name the ones people like. There's a bunch of other ones that are out there. And on top of that, we've got books, and we've got blogs, and we've got articles, and we've got documentaries, and we've got museums. Why all of this? Because it was the turning point in a war in which the free world was at stake. And it captures the essence of American bravery and American sacrifice. And so we love it. We love to recall this important moment in history. And we like to go back. And what each one of those movies does is look at it from different angles. Some of the movies are more into what happened when they landed. Some are more into the aftermath. Some are more into the deception that took place beforehand. What they're all doing is saying, this thing D-Day is a diamond to us as Americans. We're going to hold it up and we're going to let the light hit it. And we're going to look at all the different angles of it because it's so important. It's the turning point in this war in which the whole world was on the line. Understanding that, we can approach Revelation 12, 7 through 17, and understand that it does not take place after Revelation 12, 1 through 6, that instead, John is giving us a different perspective of the same events that we saw taking place in the first six verses. The first six verses of chapter 12 describe the events that took place upon the earth in the history of redemption. In the garden, Satan was grinning as he watched Adam and Eve sink their teeth into the disobedience that brought sin and death into God's perfect creation. And God immediately promises that uh, a child is going to come from the line of Eve who will step on Satan's head, deliver a fatal blow to the enemy. And Revelation 12, 1-6 showed us how Christ was going to be born from Eve's line. Throughout the Old Testament, what we saw is that the people of God are like a pregnant woman crying out in birth pains. They are, they are um, God's people under the law, waiting for their Messiah, longing for their Messiah. And Jesus is born from their lineage, and before Satan the dragon can devour him, Jesus lives, dies, resurrects, and ascends to heaven. And the church then flees into the wilderness as she is hunted by the dragon and she is nourished by God there until the child who rules the nations returns. In verses 7-17, through 17, we're going to see John give us the heavenly perspective on those events that took place on the earth. Much like we have some D-Day movies showing us the planning, while others are more focused on the actual invasion. We're getting different perspectives here. Christ's defeat of Satan in his first coming, in his first advent, is our D-Day as Christians. It is the massive turning point in redemption history. 
So just like D-Day, we take it and we hold it up, right? And we look at it from a multitude of angles. In fact, we do it more so because what we find in the gospel is a freedom that will last not just for a time in a temporary state, but will last forever. And so we get the heavenly angle of the defeat of Satan through the work of Christ here in this passage. So let's read it. Revelation 12, starting in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had been given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Father, give us the help that we need, Lord, the the heavenly assistance that we need to be able to understand your word. Uh, Lord, your word doesn't need to be uh, enlightened. Our minds need to be enlightened. We need you to open our minds to be able to understand your word. Your word is truth. Your word is our life. It is our daily bread. It is what we live upon. It is what we depend upon. It is what uh, sets the rules and the boundaries and the regulations for our lives. It tells us where we're free. And Lord, it tells us most importantly about your son, Jesus. Help us to see his glory in your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 7 begins with pretty stunning words. War arose in heaven. Again, this is not sequential. This is a new perspective on the same events from the first six verses of chapter 12. And what we're seeing that is as Christ is on the earth, as he is doing the work of his first advent, living a sinless life, dying an atoning death, rising again, Michael is in heaven battling with Satan. Now, you may be tempted to read this and think that this is referring to the fall the way that verse 4 was, but verses 10 and 11 clue us into the fact that we are dealing with the first coming of Christ, not the fall of Satan. Christ has thrown Satan down, verses 10 and 11 tell us, and has enabled his people to conquer by his blood. And so that language tells us we are dealing with the saving ministry of the Messiah in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. So while Jesus is doing the work on earth, we have a war in heaven where Michael and the angels are fighting with the dragon. In the book of Daniel, Michael is described as having this authoritative role within the ranks of the heavenly angels in three different verses. He is referred to as God's prince. He is depicted as the captain of God's angels. His name literally means one who is like God. There are only three angels that we get names for in the Bible, and we have two of them fighting here, Michael and Lucifer. The other is Gabriel, not mentioned by name here. Maybe he's present, maybe he's not. I like to think he is. I don't know what else he would be doing when there's war in heaven. I think Gabriel was there. The fight's not long. The result is never in question. And that is because even though they are angels, Satan and Michael are not equals. And that is because Michael is acting in heaven as a representative of Christ. Jesus is winning the war on earth. Michael represents him in heaven. But the battle is brief because the victory is dependent upon the one that Michael represents, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus and Satan are not equals. 
Jesus is God, right? He created the angels. And so, Michael is representing Christ, but he is superior to Lucifer, even though they're both angels, because he is in the authority of Christ, representing Christ, while Christ is on earth doing the work. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that the efforts of Lucifer and his rebellious angels amount to defeat. It doesn't take long. And it's time for him and his demonic legions to be tossed out of heaven. Now, I know a lot of you are like, well, what in the world was he doing there in the first place? Because when you think of heaven, you think of the place that we go when we die where there is no sin. Okay? I think we need to be really careful as Christians in America. Because I'm going to tell you that I went to church for the first three years after I became a believer. And nobody told me that heaven was going to be a physical place called the new earth. And I thought I was going to die and I was going to go up to this place in the sky and like I said on Sunday, maybe sit on my little cloud and pluck a harp or something, you know, play a lyre. Because um, I learned from Pastor Ben this week, you hold a lyre, but a harp sits on the ground. So maybe I would, I would have a, a, a little lyre sitting on my cloud, right? No. The, the, the Lord is going to reign over the new earth forever and we will be his people living under his rule and living under his reign. And so... We're not talking about heaven as in the place where you are going to spend the eternal age of glory. And in fact, I think that the reference here is specifically to the heavenly tribunals that we see in the Old Testament. So for example, Job 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Job 2. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. We get another scene in Zechariah where there are these accusations being brought against Joshua, who's the high priest over the people when they come back from exile. Not the Joshua from uh, the days of Moses, but the Joshua from the days of, uh, after the exile. And Zechariah 3, verse 1 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Interestingly enough, if you keep reading that passage, God responds to the accusations of Satan by taking the filthy garments of the priest and giving him instead clothes of purity. And God goes on to say that he does this for Joshua the high priest as a sign of the branch who will come from the priestly line in the future. And of course, we know that is Jesus. So even in that scene in Zechariah where you have Satan coming to accuse Joshua the high priest, we have God going, okay, he's bringing his accusations, but there will come a priest from this line who will absolutely obliterate him and will destroy him and will put an end to his accusations. And when Jesus the high priest comes, that's exactly what he does. He puts an end to the accusations that Satan brings against the people of God. He has seen to it in his first advent that Satan is cast out of the heavenly tribunals. The trials are over. God's people have been declared not guilty. And this is why the verses resemble Satan's fall from heaven. The war he started in his initial rebellion has taken a major turn here. Because like I said, this is D-Day. Christ has invaded Satan's territory. He has come into the world that lies in the power of the evil one. He has lived. He has died for sin. He has risen from the grave. He has taken the sting of death and he has removed it. And he has taken the hot breath of condemnation on the neck of his people and he has removed it. So yes, Satan has been thrown down from the heavenly tribunals and there is now no accusation that he can bring against God's elect. The cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ to the place of highest honor at the Father's right hand has seen to it. And Jesus spoke about his own first coming in this way. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his ascension, will draw all people to myself. 
as we go to verses 10 through 12, what we see is that there are these loud voices in heaven who rejoice over the defeat of Satan. They're rejoicing over the salvation of God, the power of God, the kingdom of God. They're rejoicing over the authority of Christ that has been displayed in the defeat of Satan. They rejoice over the fact that the accusations that Satan loves to make against God's people, that they are done. They rejoice that the people have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the gospel that they proclaim. That even the martyrs who love the Lord more than their own lives, they have conquered by the lamb's blood as well satan thought well I've, i've done it i have defeated god when god in the flesh dies on the cross at calvary when the son of god dies at calvary satan thought that's it i did it i won but in truth those who were doomed for being deceived and breaking god's laws were now being saved satan thought the whole world was his Because he was watching Jesus die. And he thought, now it's going to come to me. It's going to be mine. But Christ resurrected, showed the superior power of God over every enemy, including Satan and death. Satan thought the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God, they're my possession now. But the kingdom of God was confirmed in the covenant sealing blood of Jesus, and the kingdom will be consummated when Jesus returns. Satan thought all authority belongs to me now. But Christ then ascends to the right hand of of the Father and sits down and receives the title of Lord once and for all. And his authority is shown in how every knee is going to bow to him and every tongue is going to confess. So everything Satan thought he had accomplished when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't accomplish any of it. In fact, he lost everything that he ever cared about. And so that is what lies at the heart of the rejoicing. They're rejoicing that Satan is a loser and that God is a winner. That Satan is a a loser and that Jesus is a victor. They are loudly proclaiming that the accuser has lost his power to bring accusation. And without accusation, there is nothing to separate us from God. Christ has seen to it that we would eternally know the Father without guilt, without condemnation. And so this is what Paul's rejoicing in in Romans 8 when he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Right? Remember the the ones we just talked about, the martyrs in chapter 12 who they didn't even love their own lives as much as they loved the Lord? Did the sword separate them from the love of God? Paul says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But that doesn't mean, even though that's how we're being treated in the world, that doesn't mean that we're being defeated. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Literally, the uh, Greek says double conquerors. Through Him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including the devil, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan has meant to use all of those things to ensure that we would not know God's love. He wanted to use death to separate you from God's love. He wants to use your life to separate you from God's love. He wants tribulation to cause you to walk away from Christ over discomfort. He wants distress to cause you to give up in despair. He wants persecution to cause you to become despondent. He wants suffering to cause you to give up on your race. But we are double conquerors. Double victors through Christ because of the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God has come because Christ has shown his authority in his death and in his resurrection. And there is nothing in this life that will separate you from the Father and there is nothing that anyone can do to you that will separate you from the Father and there is nothing in or out of this world that can separate you from the Father. And the Father has seen to that through the obedient life and death and resurrection and ascension of his Son. And the end result of that is that the heavens should rejoice. That's the only perspective the heavens can have. Satan, the accuser, has lost to Christ the King. Therefore, the heavens and all who dwell in them rejoice. But the earth should have a different reaction. 
Because Satan will still rage on the earth with all the more anger and all the more hatred now that he knows his fate is sealed. His domain is done. It is crumbling by the day. And he wants as many to go down with him as he can get in this epic battle for the glory of God. But he is not as in control of all that as he thinks he is. And yet he's still dangerous. We'll talk about that more in a bit. Let's look at verses 13 through 17. In these verses, you're getting the same story of verse 6, but you're getting it in more detail. Verse 6 said, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. And what I taught is that that is the New Testament church, the church under grace, that is now being hunted by Satan in the wilderness. He couldn't kill the bridegroom, so now he comes for the bride. But wherever the church is, whether it's in Seaford, Virginia, or Barcelona, Spain, or London, England, or some place where the gospel is yet to be preached, wherever the church is doing kingdom work, God is there nourishing her and protecting her. And this is taking place for 1260 days. Um, That is a reference to the back half of Daniel's 70th symbolic week. Now, I know some of you are like, not the 70th week again. (laughs) Because the 70th week put some of us through the ringer, all right? We're going to do the 70th week again. Here we go. (laughs) I just want to review it, okay? Because there's uh, a couple of mentions of it. In Daniel 9, there is a prophecy about 70 weeks or 70 weeks of years, 77s. And what I taught, Uh, back in January, and reiterate tonight, is that we should interpret the first 69 weeks of that prophecy literally, as the time in between Nehemiah and Jesus, which would be 483 years. But when you get to that 70th week, I believe that the text in Daniel 9.27 pushes us to interpret uh, that, uh, that, that 70th week symbolically. The first half of the week is Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Daniel 9, 27 says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, okay, so for half of this symbolic week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. I believe that is a reference to Jesus coming, dying on the cross. That's where he put an end to sacrifice and offering by being the final sacrifice for our sin. The last half of that week would be the age of the New Testament church the time in between Jesus' ascension to heaven and his ultimate return. So in Revelation 11, we saw the last half of Daniel's 70th week being talked about symbolically with different numbers. Revelation 11, starting in verse 2, says, But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. 42 months, 1,260 days are both ways of describing three and a half years, the time of the church age, the last half of Daniel's symbolic 70th week. Revelation 11 verse 9 says, For three and a half days some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. That's talking about the dead bodies of God's witnesses, which represent the church, And so for three and a half days, the world will celebrate like they have defeated the church when the church is martyred and when the church is being persecuted. That three and a half days, again, is a reference to the back half of the 70th week, the church age. 11.11 lets us uh, know that after the three and a half days, they resurrect because that's when Christ returns at the end of the church age. So this is the time period that's being talked about here in Revelation 12, 13 through 17. It's a blown up view of Revelation 12 through 6. The camera angle is showing us more of the replay, right? You ever watch a game and they show like three replays and you're like, I don't know if it's a catch. Then they show that one and you're like, it's a catch. It's a catch. We got a catch here, right? And you're excited if that's your team, Um, right? And, And so here it's like we're getting more of the angle. We're seeing more of the church age. We know this because of verse 14. Look at it. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for time and times and half a time. 
It's the same thing, right? You got the woman going into the wilderness. We have her being hunted by the serpent, being hunted by the dragon. And she is being nourished there in the wilderness. And we know that that nourishment is coming from God. Uh, we learned that back in chapter uh, 12, verse 6. The time, times, and half a time that you see in 1214 is again another way of describing the last half of Daniel's 70th symbolic week or the church age. Here's Michael Kuykendall on this. He says, The number three and a half is half of the perfect number seven. It is a bad number because alongside its other matches, 42 months, 1260 days, time, times, and half a time. Bad number in the apocalyptic literature because it represents a time in which the church is suffering. Nourished, protected, but suffering. Verses 13 through 17 depict an enraged dragon reacting to his defeat. He wanted to eat the child. He wanted to devour the child born from Eve's line, the one who was going to stomp on his head. And he failed to eat the child of the prophecy. And now he's going around trying to breathe his demonic fire on the bride that the child will marry. That is what verse 13 shows us. He's pursuing the mother of the male child. This is the church. Christ was born from the lineage of the Old Testament church, the church under the law. So while he's born from the people of God, he's also the groom to the people of God in the beauty of the gospel. And we should have no problem using these metaphors interchangeably because the Bible does, even side by side here in Revelation 12. But as much as the dragon wants to destroy the church, wants to destroy the people of God, he can't do it. In 12.6, she fled into the wilderness, but here in verse 14, we find out how she fled. She was given the two great wings of the eagle so she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness and be nourished by the provision and the presence of God wherever she's at. The two great wings of the eagle are not from the eagle who flew around crying out the woes back in Revelation 8 because that eagle was not called the great eagle. Instead, I believe we are meant to recall the way that God delivered his people in the Exodus. Exodus 19 verse 4 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Do you see that? And so those are the same eagles' wings here being given to the church so that she could fly from Satan to the nourishment and the presence of God. And that nourishment also makes us think of our friend Elijah under the broom tree, doesn't it? Because he was pursued by a deceiver. He was pursued by a destroyer. He was pursued by a liar. Her name was Jezebel. She wanted to kill Elijah. And so where did he do? He ran into the wilderness. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Like Elijah, God's prophets, his witnesses, his church, are being hunted by the dragon, who is enraged over defeat. And like Elijah, it is the nourishment of God that will carry us on. We will go in the strength of the Lord. But the dragon is not, to, he, he's not going to relent. He, he's ready to employ his greatest weapon against us. And that is his lies and his deceit. It's the same thing that he used in the garden. And you see that in verse 15, he's pouring water from his mouth like a river. What he's wanting to do is to sweep away the woman like a flood. In Revelation, what comes from the mouth is symbolic of words and the power that they hold. So for example, in Revelation 1, verse 16, talking about Jesus, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That sword symbolizes the power Jesus has to bring judgment, particularly on false teachers. And when he brings judgment, he brings judgment with what? His word. 
So then you get to Revelation 2, verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 2.16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So the sword shows the authority Christ has to bring judgment. It was a similar idea back in chapter 11 when you have the two witnesses who preach the message of the kingdom and if anybody comes against them and against their message, they will get fire from the mouths of the witnesses in return. Because the power of the gospel is in the mouth of the witnesses. And if you come against that gospel, you'll get the same sort of judgment that the false prophets of Baal got in the days of Elijah. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. When we get to the bold judgments in Revelation 16, you're going to see coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs for their demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So what comes from the mouth symbolizes power. So what comes from the mouth of the serpent here in chapter 12? It's not powerful truth. It's not the power of God's word. It's the power of his lies. It's the power of Satan's deception. It's an inferior power to God's truth, but it is nonetheless a dangerous power. This has always been the weapon that Satan uses. This has always been the the, the favorite weapon of the serpent, right? Did God really say? I mean, from the very beginning, did God really say if you eat it, you're not really going to die? Or that you're going to die? Did he really say that? Doesn't he just not want you to be like him? Doesn't he just not want you to be happy? And he wants to take those same lies and the same undermining of the word of God and the authority of God and the commands of God and he wants to wash us away with a flood of deception. You see Satan doing this in Revelation as Jesus is addressing the seven churches. He commends Ephesus because of what? They need to remember their first love, but they do resist false teaching. And he commends them for that. And if they would continue to reject false teaching and they would remember their first love, they'll eat from the tree of life. On the other hand, when he rebukes Pergamum, he rebukes for them for holding to false teaching. And he says if they don't repent, he will come against them with what? The sword of his mouth, right? His judgment, according to his word. And then he rebukes Uh, or his rebukes about false teaching, they reach a culmination when he comes down on Thyatira because they've been bowing down to a false teaching that's so bad, it's characterized by that woman Jezebel that was chasing Elijah back in the Old Testament. Revelation 2.20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. There was a battle for doctrine. There was a battle for truth from the very start, from the very beginning. As, as soon as the Lord ascends, Satan is there trying to wash the church away with a flood of lies keep reading about early church history it doesn't stop the attacks from the false teachers continued in the first couple centuries of the church you had the docetists running around saying jesus wasn't fully human the gnostics running around saying god could never be a man because everything physical is evil and you had arius running around trying to convince people that god created his son And there were people like Ignatius of Loyola and Irenaeus and Athanasius and Justin Martyr who stood up to them and took arms up against this stuff and said, no, we will not have the church washed away with a flood of Satan's lies. This is the truth. And they would stand on the truth that was taught to them by the apostles. Some of them, they knew the apostles themselves or knew somebody that knew them. And so we're talking about one or two generations removed from Jesus' ascension into heaven. And they stood up against this stuff and said, we stand on the truth, we stand on the scriptures, we stand on the gospel handed down once for all to the saints. But did Satan relent? course not he's still lying to us during the age of the church he is never going to stop until ultimately the lord returns and satan is defeated forever but down to the very last miserable second he's going to be trying to tell his lies and so today we have people running around in the church not this church i hope people running around the church teaching ridiculous things like god chooses not to know the future that's called open theism 
And that is a theology that's actually held to and taught by people who claim to be orthodox. It's a flat-out lie about who God is. People that teach Jesus' cross as a means to health and wealth and prosperity. They, they take his cross and, and they try to turn it into this thing that's not winning eternal freedom and salvation for us, but this thing that gets you temporary um, you know, temporary happiness and, 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 and temporary contentment here on this earth instead of eternal salvation. If people running around teaching God's spirit should be understood to be like the blue genie from Aladdin. Actual quote from Bethel Redding's Jen Johnson, a woman who writes songs about the Holy Spirit that are sung in churches all around this country every single Sunday. What this shows is that Satan is still hunting the bride of God, still trying to wash her away with a tidal wave of deceit and falsehood. And so we have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant to discern truth from error, to love the truth, and to hate the error. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By, by us, he means the apostolic company, the apostles, the ones who are teaching what Jesus taught them. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We test the spirits. We test the spirits because we want to know, is the spirit of truth behind it or is the spirit of error behind it? Is this from Christ or is this from his enemy? There are words written by a guy named Derek Webb from back in 2003 in a song called Beloved that I love. It's, it's sung from the perspective of Jesus. Beloved, these are perilous days when your culture is so set in its ways that you will listen to salesmen and thieves preaching other than the truth you received because they are telling lies for they cannot circumcise your hearts. Beloved, there is nothing more, no more blessings and no more rewards than the treasure of my body and blood given freely to all daughters and sons. The tragedy of those lyrics is that the man who wrote them did not heed his own words. That album came out in 2003 and by 2018, Derek Webb was calling himself an ex-Christian and now works for an organization where he helps people leave the faith. That is what happens if we are not vigilant in our discernment. The flood will wash us away. But praise God that the truth of Jesus will never let Satan wash away his church. Individuals may fall away, proving not that they've lost their salvation, but they didn't have it to begin with. But the church will never, ever be washed away with the flood of Satan's lies. Then we get this scene in verse 16 that is both relieving and terrifying where the earth comes to the aid of the woman and swallows the river that the dragon poured from his lying mouth. And this speaks to the judgment of God when the earth opened up and devoured Korah and Dathan and Abiram in Numbers 16. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. In the same way that God protected Israel by swallowing up these false teachers from Moses' generation, he will swallow up the false teachers throughout all the generations of the church, and he will not allow us to be overcome by the lies of the devil. He won't. And then in verse 17, the dragon is so angry that he's unable to wash the woman away with the lies. He's going to come for her offspring. That's anybody who is born of God under the New Testament ministry of the local church. That is the Bible telling us that Satan is determined 
to try to eat up every new convert and make a shipwreck of their faith. Anybody who obeys Christ, anybody who preaches the gospel, you're in his crosshairs. And that is all of us. It should be. And then the chapter ends with him standing on the sand of the sea. And if that feels ominous, it is. Because when you get to chapter 13, he is going to call a beast out of the sea who will come against the church. And that beast will be representative of oppressive governments that persecute the church throughout the church age. And what this shows is that once the dragon realizes his lies and his deceits are not going to fully destroy the church, he says, well, let me try a new tactic. Let me, let me see what I can do with this beast. Let me see what I can do with these governments. In the end, as we close up tonight, I think that these verses here in uh, 7 through 17, Revelation 12, show us the tension we live in as Christians every day. These, theologic, uh, these theological truths that we hold in tension. And so I'll call it tension theology. All right, It's a new term I'm making up. For example, we're saved now, but in a sense we're waiting on our ultimate salvation. Right? I- I'm redeemed now. I'm saved now. I'm justified before God as if I have never sinned now because of what His Son has done for me. And yet, I'm still being sanctified and I know that I'm not going to be fully without, without sin until He returns or until I die and I go to glory. So my salvation is already, but it's not yet. And I hold that intention. Right? That's theology that I hold intention every day. Um, another example would be Paul and his pastoral ministry. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about how all these people are being saved through his ministry, and he's like, for people who are repenting, our ministry is an aroma of life. For people who reject us, our ministry is an aroma of death. And then at the end of that, he says, who is sufficient for these things? Not Paul, right? That, that, that's what's implied there. He's like, going around preaching and some people repent and some people want to come against you and they hate you? Who is sufficient for this work? And yet on the other hand, in his first letter, Paul says to Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so you have Paul talking to the same church going, I'm totally insufficient, and also going, follow me. These are two things that every pastor has to hold in tension, right? Where you're like, Oh, I'm not sufficient, but I'm going to need you guys to follow me if I'm going to lead the church. Every pastor has to hold this intention. This text gives us two really solid doses of tension theology, undeniable truths that we hold in tension every day in our living as Christians. Number one, Satan is dangerous, but he's defeated. He's a dangerous but defeated enemy. And we hold these things in tension. He's called a lot of names in this passage. He's the accuser. He's the devil. He's the dragon. He's the deceiver. He is Satan. He prowls around the earth. He's seething about the fact that he is lost and that God has won. Which is why Peter says, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In light of that, Peter says, we ought to be sober in our thinking. We should be watchful. Satan comes as a deceiving angel of light, convincing you he is for your good when really he is trying to murder you. He is trying to kill you. He is trying to destroy your life. He comes teaching new gospels with the same old lie at the center, which is you can be happy without God. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, Paul says, For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. At the heart of all those different gospels, it's the same old stinking lie from the garden. You can have happiness without God. You don't need God. God's not for your joy. God's making rules to make you sad and miserable. So all this stuff's true about Satan. He's a dangerous and he is a powerful enemy, so powerful that in his original fall he took a third of the angels out of heaven with him, so powerful he's going to call this beast up out of the sea in chapter 13, so powerful that there is woe to the earth and sea because the devil comes to them in wrath. And yet... While we hold intention as danger, we also hold intention the reality that he is a loser. He has lost. His end is decreed. His future is fixed. We know what's going to happen to him, and we know what's going to happen to anybody who would align themselves with him. 
They will be consumed by fire. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. And the sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then you get to verse 15. And in a verse that certainly should compel us to be evangelists. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What this means is that when we deal with Satan, we've got to keep both these realities in mind. You can't be lulled to sleep by him. You can't think he's not concerned with you. You can't think he's not a devouring, a devouring lion and a lying angel of light. Joel Beakey says he knows where to slither in to push us into sin. We must be on guard against Satan by watching and praying. We must be equipped to face the fury of an enraged enemy and by grace overcome him. But Beaky there in that quote gives us the tension-creating truth on the other side. That by grace we overcome Satan. By grace we overcome this enemy. By the grace of who? The male child born from the woman. The male child whose authority has come to earth and thrown Satan down out of heaven. So is Satan dangerous? Yes. But he is defeated. You're aware of him, but you tremble not for him. You only fear the one who crushed him. Which leads us to our second truth we close with. The church is a pursued but a protected bride. Throughout the 1260-day, 42-month, three-and-a-half-day, three-and-a-half-week age of the church, we have safety in Jesus. Verse 6, God is nourishing his bride. Verse 14, the same thing is happening. The dragon is angry, he's on his warpath, but God is his people's refuge, and where they seek shelter, there he is. Satan's going to come with his idols, and he's going to come with his temptations, he's going to come with his attacks, his slander. But wherever you are serving in the kingdom and serving the king, there's the Lord nourishing you, protecting you. Wherever you are, there's the Lord dwelling in your heart, right? The seal of your salvation dwelling in your heart, the spirit of the living God. There's no power the devil's bringing against you that is greater than the power that's in you and the power that is above you in our Lord. And throughout the 1260-day, 42-month, three-and-a-half-day church age, we do not just have safety in Christ, but remember, we're double conquerors. We have victory in Christ. And we may not have that victory in full yet, but even now, even now, when you face temptation, you face it as a spiritual victor by the blood of Jesus. When you come to Jesus asking forgiveness, you come as a spiritual victor by the blood of Jesus. When you wake up in the morning ready to face a new day, you face it as a spiritual victor by the blood of Jesus. And when you put your trust in his blood, you put your trust out of the reach of Satan when it comes to eternal condemnation in hell. He cannot harm your soul. Holding all these truths together, we would say, I can't defeat this dragon. I hope you don't leave here thinking, well, I'm, I'm ready to charge hell with a water pistol after that. Let's do it. Let's take him down. Not in your strength. He's too powerful. He's too deceitful. He's too angry. But we're not trusting in our strength tonight. We turn to God and we find that in Christ, he has already dealt with all of this. We simply need to trust in his safety. We need to trust in his victory. We need to remember the devil's time is short. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Let's pray. Lord, this world is filled with devils that threaten to undo us. But we have the God-man on our side. We have... Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. We have you, Lord, nourishing us and protecting us, measuring us. You know every heart. You know every name, every hair on our heads. You know our past. You know our present. You know our future. You're transcendent above and beyond us, but you're imminent, Lord. You're with us. And we rejoice in that, God. We rejoice that as we head into an Easter season where we want to preach the gospel, we want to have a a big egg hunt, and we want to share the gospel there, and we want to share the gospel on Sunday morning, and 
and, and we want to see people at this time of the year where they're more receptive to spiritual truths repent. We recognize Satan wants to stop that. We recognize he wants to throw his body in the way of that. We recognize that as we get out of debt, he hates it. He loathes it. We recognize he's going to come for us. Lord, he's sifting us as we speak. Lord, he, he, he's trying to take us and, 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 and destroy us with suffering right now as a church. We've got so many in our body hurting, suffering, and pain, God. Emotional pain, physical pain, spiritual pain. Father, we will not bow down. We will not tremble for Him. We tremble for You alone. We fear You alone. And we trust in You, Lord, to lead us through this time of suffering, to lead us through this time of hardship, to help us endure. We know that He hates the gospel opportunities that sit in front of us as a debt-free church about to head into Easter season and preach as a debt-free church making plans for how we can reach this community and this neighborhood until You return, Lord. He hates it. He's coming for us. We know it. And He has come for us. But none of this is out of Your governance. He thinks He's in control. He's not. He's never been. It's You, Lord. So there's no suffering that's come upon us that you didn't allow. And there's no suffering that's come upon us that you will not sustain us through. There's no suffering that's come upon us that will steal eternal life from us. There's no suffering that's come upon us that can rob us from the age of glory. He can't touch our souls. So we tremble not for him. But we hold in tension how dangerous he is and we ask you to protect us from the enemy as you have taught us to pray and to protect us from his temptations, and to give us strength in our suffering, to help Pastor Ben and Pastor David and myself shepherd this body through the suffering. We need you, Lord, and we hate him. And we want to do everything we can to make you look glorious as we suffer, and as we are out of debt, and as we preach the gospel, and as we do our work as your workmanship. And we want to do everything we can to get people to recognize that he's a liar, and he should not ever be believed. We love you, God. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for defeating the serpent. Thank you, Jesus, that while we understand he's dangerous, we don't have to tremble. Thank you, Jesus, for nourishing us, for being near to us, for loving us, for dying for us, for being the bishop of our church and watching over us. You are good, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.